All right, folks, we are back. Uh, we're just finishing up today, a, um, uh, I guess, w- uh, a th- the third part uh, of a three-part series on uh, canonicity. Uh, specifically, we've been looking at the Old Testament canon and uh, want to try to punch through that if we can and uh, move on uh, in, our, in our study of Song of Solomon. Uh, but we've been talking about o- Old Testament canon, sort of the... Um, you know that we're talking about the the books that uh, that properly belong to uh, the Bible, belong in the Bible. Uh, we've talked about how God has communicated His message to us as His people, primarily via the prophets in the Old Testament. Well, we saw that in Hebrews chapter one, um, and then th- through the apostles uh, in in the New Testament. And I think it's important to to say that the message. Uh, their message, the message of the prophets and the message of the apostles and God's message are one and the same. Uh, that is to say that the, uh, the prophets and the apostles understood what they said and what they wrote down. Okay? They didn't have one message that they were conveying and then some separate sort of higher message maybe that God was trying to communicate. These messages are one and the same. So the, the, those spokesmen for God understood what they were saying to the people. They understood what they were writing to the people. And their audience, the original audience that they were speaking to or writing to, also understood their message to the extent that they were actually held accountable for their response to it. So it wasn't as if the prophets and apostles were saying things and writing things and the people were like, well, I know you're saying that, but what's the real meaning? You know, so, so what does God really want us to do? They, under, they understood what was being said to them and what was being written. And all through Scripture, as, 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 as God reveals His truth to His people, there is this assumption that God's people are accountable for the message that they've heard, that they understand it, and that they're required to obey what God has revealed and what He has said. So we see that consistently all through, all through the Old Testament. Again, when you get to the New Testament, even in the life of Christ and the way that he interacted with the Jewish people, there was this expectation that they, would, they, they understood what the prophets had conveyed, that they understood the warnings, they understood the promises, they understood the, the instructions that they were given. There was not any confusion about that. And Jesus said, listen, you're, you know, you're in a sad condition the way you're living and the way that you're responding, especially to his teaching, because he said, you, you, don't, you don't believe what's already been revealed. And so it's sort of this shame on you for not paying attention to what God has already been revealing through the centuries, through, again, primarily those Old Testament prophets. So when we talk about the canon, we're talking about those God-inspired writings that God has preserved for his people in subsequent ages. So we're talking about not just those things that were God-inspired, but those things that have been preserved. So when you're, when you're, when you're discussing the issue of, of, of canonicity, you're, you're combining both of those things. You're saying that there, these writings were God-breathed and these writings were preserved through God's providence for us. And so we mentioned uh, this issue of the lost books, um, supposedly lost books of, of the Bible, uh, books... Uh, that or, or writings that are not a part of our Bibles, and we, we kind of broke them into three categories, if you will. We looked at those mentioned in the Bible that we don't have as a part of our Bibles. There's actually 
writings and books that, and records that are mentioned in the scriptures themselves, but that we don't actually have anymore. So we, our, our conclusion is then God didn't intend for them to be a part of the canon because they, even though some of those messages, for instance, through some of the prophets were given, they were either given and not written down or maybe given and written down but not preserved. And so we're not accountable for those things. And, and I don't think that we've been trucking along here as the New Testament church for 2,000 years not having what we need, right, to, to live faithfully before God. So there's those. Then we looked at a second category, there, those, those non-existent books. <laughs> it's almost humorous to say it. Those non-existent books that are not mentioned in the Bible. So they're, they're books and writings that the Bible them, itself does not refer to and that we do not have in our possession, and yet there's all kinds of theories uh, about these particular writings. Uh, we looked at the what we called the JEDP theory, which refers to the books of Moses and how the how the the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, came came to be uh, put together or assembled, rather than just accept the fact that Moses wrote them. Uh, we looked at the Q document in the New Testament, which is just sort of another, um, you know, kind of a, a similar. Similar theory, similar concept, but really applied to the New Testament writings, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and again, uh, who, who wrote those books and when they were written. So we discussed some of that, and then we talked about the miscellaneous, sort of the third category was the miscellaneous pretenders to the canon, anything from the Book of Mormon all the way to, you know, ex-cathedra pronouncements by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, those would be obvious things as Christians that we would have problems with, but then we even brought it a little closer to home and said, you know, we have to even be careful about confessions of faith, um, you know, that are biblical, they're just not God-inspired, right? And so we're, they're helpful for us, Westminster Confession of Faith, London, London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, catechisms, I mean, those things aren't necessarily, they're not inherently bad or evil, it's just sometimes people, I think, can get so dependent on those things that they're more quick to quote from a confession than they are to just take you to the text of Scripture and show you where Scripture says and, and, and teaches and reinforces certain uh, doctrines. Uh, even down to the notes in our study Bibles, right? So just to make sure that if you have a study Bible and you're reading down through there the text of Scripture and then there's a line usually on the bottom or in the middle of the page and then below that are some other writings and uh, have some verse, verse references associated with them, just know that that's not, that's, that, that's not God-inspired at the bottom. And so, again, though, though, although those things are very helpful for us, um, there is a big difference between those study notes and, and the text of, of Scripture uh, and the canon. So we sort of concluded by saying that, that conservative Christianity has always believed that the Old Testament is what it, what it says that it is and that it arose in the way that it claims that the Pentateuch was written by Moses, um, that, the, 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 that the prophets, it was written by the prophets, by those men whose names are mentioned, that the Psalms that you know, are said that they're written by David were written by David, um, and that the history books of the Old Testament were written at a time roughly contemporaneous with the events that uh, the, the events concerned. But that's just to say that when the, these, the, these prophets spoke and wrote and the people of their day, again, accepted them as messengers from God and accepted that those words 
and those messages that were shared were binding on their conscience. I mean, it's not a, it wasn't an option. Should we listen to that or not? Should we follow what that man says or not? They, they believed these men to be representatives for God, um, not just good teachers, not just wise people, but they understood that there was this authority was behind what these men were, were telling the people. And conservative Christianity has believed that the Bible was completed about 400 uh, B.C. So that will play into our discussion here in just a minute about the, uh, the Apocrypha. Uh, so throughout Israel's history, and even before, because we have Enoch, Noah, Abraham, you know, I think you could, you could make an argument that they were considered to be prophets in the sense that Hebrews 1 talks about. Uh, there were men who were recognized as spokesmen for God, and their word was regarded as true by those who were faithful uh, in the nation. So they delivered supernatural revelations from God, and the authority and the divine nature of the prophet's word was accepted by their contemporaries. So this is what, this is what ancient Israel has always, always believed. Okay? Israel has always believed, the faithful in that nation have always believed that God spoke by the prophets. Now, what about the Apocrypha? Uh, is the Apocrypha part of the Old Testament? Well, it is by far the largest group of writings that is debated, you might say, it related to the issue of Old Testament canon. Uh, there are some 13 or 14 books uh, in the Apocrypha. The number varies even among those who say that the Apocrypha is inspired. Uh, and the numbering differs, for example, because some of the books are really just additions to existing books of the Old Testament. So you've got th- three, addition, three additions to the canonical book uh, of Daniel, uh, at least one major addition to the book of Esther. Uh, you have the three books of, of Maccabees uh, that are mainly historical books uh, containing information that we have for the history of Israel between the Old Testament. So it's, we're talking about in that 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament eras. Uh, we have Ecclesiasticus, which is not to be confused with the book we just studied together, uh, uh, the, the Old, Testament, Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we have Wisdom of Solomon. Both of those are poetical books. Um, and, um, and, and not to say that there's not some wisdom in there. So it's not to say that they're, they're all blasphemous or that they're all completely erroneous. That's not what we're saying. The question is, are they a part of Scripture? <laughs> That's the thing. You know, should they be included in the Old Testament uh, as a part of the Old Testament canon? And, and we would say that, that they should not. Um, now, what are some of the arguments that the Roman Catholic Church or a case that the Roman Catholic Church might make or anybody might make for the acceptance of the Apocrypha? Uh, a few of them, the, the Apocrypha, they would say the Apocrypha is in the Greek Septuagint, which was a trans Old Testament, sort of you might say the Old Testament Bible of the early church. It was the, a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, scriptures. They would say, well, it's in the, it's in the Septuagint, so that's, if it's in there then it just we have to make the assumption that the early church accepted that uh, as a part of the Old Testament canon. Uh, they would also say, also claim, that there is a universal consent among the early church fathers on the canonicity of the Apocrypha. So they would say, listen, if you go back and look at the early church fathers, they were all in agreement on, on the fact that the Apocrypha should be accepted. Uh, Catholic tradition has 
for the most part, always accepted the Apocrypha. Uh, and, of course, the Roman Catholic Church believes that God promised that they would never depart from the truth. So in some ways, they just kind of use their own history and say, well, the, the Roman Catholic Church has had this opinion about the Apocrypha, and then because they have this high view of their, of their church, the church, that the church would never depart from the truth, then they sort of use their own history as an argumentation to say that it must be accepted. Uh, we have the Council of Trent, 16th century in 1546, uh, that accepted the Apocrypha uh, in no uncertain terms. Uh, and they accepted the, the Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees as a part of the canon. And they would say that Jesus and the apostles followed the Jews in accepting the Apocrypha. So they sort of make this argument: the Jews accepted it. Um, again, tying back into the Greek, the Greek Septuagint, in that if the Jews accepted it, Jesus would have accepted it as well as his representatives, the the apostles. So those are just some things that would, I guess, arguments that might come in favor of it, but there, there's quite a number of reasons why we would not and don't accept the Apocrypha as a part of the Old Testament canon. Uh, it is true that the Apocrypha is a part of the Septuagint, uh, but the Septuagint was not the only Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, and there were other translations of the Old Testament, other versions which rejected the, the Apocryphal books, uh, the Septuagint was was a product of the Hellenistic Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, but even history seems to indicate that the Alexandrian Jews didn't consider the Apocrypha inspired and only put it in the Septuagint as a study aid. Um, so it's even though it's as a part of it, it's there, history teaches that that's that their intention in including it wasn't to say that it was a part of the canon, but that it was helpful information. Uh, in addition, the early church fathers after the time of the New Testament were, were anything but unanimous in their acceptance of the Apocrypha. Um, and the other thing I think you just got to mention, Jesus never promised revelation through the early church fathers. So that's, that's, that's a problem. Sometimes people, li- they like to go back, and I don't mind going back and saying, hey, so-and-so in the early church had this view. Um, the, the point is you can use that argument on both sides. I mean, you usually can find an early church father <laughs> that believed just about anything. So you could just go say, well, so-and-so, the early church father believed. That's not, you know, that's not a, a bulletproof, uh, really, a, an argument. Um, so just you just got to keep that in mind, that Jesus never promised that he would reveal truth through the early church fathers. Uh, they were not on the same plane, if you will, as the, as the apostles um, and he didn't promise unanimous consent. I mean, Jesus didn't say that all the early church fathers are going to agree on these, on these issues. Uh, furthermore, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent actually stressed the Apocrypha, I think, only to bolster the cer- certain heresies that could be found in Rome and the Apocrypha, but not in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, or in the Reformed uh, churches. So... Uh, it's interesting as you go through those books, there are some doctrines that the Catholic Church holds to very tightly, but they're not doctrines and teachings that you can find in other places in Scripture. And so they they obviously are going to be supportive of it if it's something that by the time you get to the Council of Trent, they've for centuries been practicing as doctrine these certain things that they're going to lean upon those books as uh, their, their evidence for those practices. Um, the Alexandrian, great Alexandrian Jewish philosopher uh, uh, Philo did not accept the Apocrypha. Jerome, interestingly, who 
the, the Roman Catholic Church places a lot of authority on actually rejected the Apocrypha. Uh, he did do the, the Latin Vulgate translation, and he did include, uh, tra- did translate the Apocrypha for that, tr- for that version, uh, but he himself put it in as an appendix, and only after considerable uh, protests, a number of protests. Um, about the Apocrypha, he wrote, such books are read, quote, for edification of the people, but not for establishing the authority of ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical dogmas. So he's just simply saying that, yeah, there's some edifying, there might be some edifying things in there, but he even saw this distinction between those particular books and, and what we know as the Old Testament. Uh, Josephus was even more explicit in his rejection. Uh, he had access to the official scrolls in the temple, and, and he gives a list of the officially accepted books, and it corresponds with the lists in other uh, rabbinical books. Uh, he speaks of the number of Jewish books which are divine, divinely trustworthy, not leaving a place for the apocryphal books. In fact, Josephus expressed the common Jewish perspectives when he said that the prophets wrote from the time of Moses to the time of Artaxerxes and that no writing since that time had the same authority. So he sort of puts bookends and says essentially from the time of Moses up to the about 400 B.C., that's when God was was revealing himself in this way, but at that time, then we don't have any writings that stand on the same level as those other, uh, those previous writings. Uh, the Jewish Talmud teaches the Holy Spirit departed from Israel after the time of Malachi. Again, it's that same time frame because both Artaxerxes and Malachi lived about four centuries before Christ, while the books of the Apocrypha were composed in the vicinity of two centuries before Christ. Uh, about A.D. 170, uh, Melito, a uh, Christian, uh, also drew up a list of canonical books. Uh, he conferred with Jewish leaders and gave, they gave the same list. Um, and then another crucial point uh, is that Jesus, you think about what those statements that Jesus made in his ministry about uh, areas that the Jews got, things that they got wrong, okay, well, Jewish, Jesus regularly and strongly disagreed with the Jewish view of tradition. So he repeatedly brought up this fact that they had elevated tradition up to this, this level of, of Old Testament revelation. Um, what's interesting is that Jesus did not disagree with their view of the canon of the Hebrew Bible. So if, if Jesus had disagreed with that, you, you would assume that he would have Said, said so, or that the four gospel writers would have mentioned it, but since they don't, and he didn't, then we naturally assume Jesus agreed with the Jews on what was canonical and inspired up to that time. So it's sort of an argument from, from the lesser to the greater. If Jesus disagreed with them over tradition, and tradition would be, in, in my mind, less important than canon and inspiration, then surely Jesus would have rebuked them if he disagreed with them over the canon. I mean, if they, were, if they had books in their Bible, so to speak, that weren't supposed to be there, you would think Jesus would have said something about that, but it's really uh, the New Testament writers are silent on, on that issue. Another good argument is the fact that the Apocrypha is never quoted in the New Testament. Uh, all books of the Old Testament are quoted directly except for, not all of them are, um, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, 
Ecclesiastes, and then we do have Song of Solomon. Those are those are the books that aren't directly quoted in the New Testament, but as you know, as we've talked about in the past, and may even uh, mention in our Song of Solomon series, they they were accepted for other reasons, uh, including the fact that they belong to the accepted Jewish canon. Uh, some parts of the Apocrypha even imply that the authors didn't consider them consider themselves to be inspired. Uh, for example, the author of Ecclesiasticus speaks three times of the Hebrew Bible in such a way that implies that he thought that they were Scripture and prophetic, but that his own were not. And you contrast that. I mean, the thing that's, that sort of jumps out to me is the, the, uh, the way in which Paul spoke. <laughs> um, the boldness that Paul had in his writings to say, what I am writing is, it's, it's Scripture. Okay, What I'm writing is... God's word, even the apostles, like for instance, Peter affirming that Paul's writings, you know, carried that kind of authority. So you, you, you consider the boldness of Paul's writings and his claim that they possess divine authority, and then you contrast that to what is a very uh, insecure tone uh, of the author of, for instance, 2 Maccabees, the, the writer there in chapter 15, verse 38 of that book says, if it is if it is poorly done, he's talking about his own writings, if it is poorly done and mediocre, that was the best I could do. You know, I mean, that just doesn't, that doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul, right? Writing a New Testament epistle and saying, you know what, if it's not, if, if what I've written is kind of poorly put together and it's kind of medium, kind of mediocre, just average, just forgive me because that's just, it's the best that I could do, right? That's, that's, not, that's not the way that the writers of Scripture present what they have written. Uh, they're very bold when it comes to their, to their claims about uh, God being behind what they were saying. Uh, moreover, the Apocrypha often contradicts both Old Testament and, and New Testament. Uh, there's chronological errors, historical errors, geographical errors. Um, there's the justifi- justification at times for things that are clearly prohibit- prohibited in the Old Testament law. Um, for instance, Tobit... Uh, one of those apocryphal writings claims to have been alive. Uh, this That author claims to have been alive when Jeroboam revolted uh, and when Assyria conquered Israel. Uh, well, those two events, one of them took place in 931 uh, B.C. and the other one took place in 722 B.C. So that's a, that's a long life. Uh, and even, in, even he, he claims that his lifespan was 158 years according to Tobit 1, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 14, verse 11 of that writing. Uh, Judith mistakenly identifies Nebuchadnezzar as king of the Assyrians. Uh, In Judith 1, 1, and verse 7, Tobit endorses the superstitious use of fish liver to ward off demons. Uh, In Tobit, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So you've got these different areas, plus you've got theological errors that are equally uh, significant. Uh, Prayers for the dead in 2 Maccabees. Again, that's, that's something that the Catholic Church has embraced. Uh, Tobit teaches salvation by the good work of almsgiving. So, again, you see some of those apocryphal writings and then those teachings, which, which you don't find anywhere else. In fact, you find some of those things in those apocryphal books contrary to what the, the Scriptures teach. And yet those are the things that the Catholic Church has been practicing. And it makes sense that over time that they just say, well, the Church has always believed this and we don't make any errors. And yes, we accept those books because a lot of those books are really... They couldn't find justification for their practices in Old Testament and New Testament books and writings. 
So that's that sort of explains, I think, their why they lean on the apo- the apocrypha. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, another argument, Luke chapter twenty-four, verse forty-four. Uh, which tells us about the occasion when the resurrected Christ engaged in, in a very fascinating conversation uh, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And during that, that dialogue, in verse 27, it says, "...that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures." Uh, later, in verse 44, uh, Jesus tells the eleven... Disciples, all things, quote, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there were times in Jesus' life when he referred to the Old Testament under simply one category, just the law. So the law is sometimes we, th- we hear law, a lot of times we just go straight to like Leviticus, you know, or to Deuteronomy. But that was actually used in broader ways than we then uh, we, we sometimes use it. So Jesus would refer to the entire Old Testament at times as the law. Sometimes he would refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So it's just sort of this twofold division. Um, and that's sort of in keeping with the general practice among even contemporary Judaism. Uh, and then in Luke 24, 44, what we see here is that Jesus spoke of a, you might call it a threefold division of the Old Testament. Um, by mentioning the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, when usually the people that sort of say the, the law and the prophets, they just sort of have this twofold division. They would just they would they would put Psalms within the prophets, but the reason I think that it's it's sometimes seen as a separate uh, sort of category is just because of the way in which Israel employed it. They used it in a different way. Uh, the, the law in, in, in those prophetical books had a purpose in the life of Israel, but particularly as it related to the worship of Israel, the Psalms were sort of pulled out and used in a different way. But what's interesting is that Jesus did not say the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and the Apocrypha. <laughs> so you have examples of Jesus referring to the law, referring to the law and the prophets, and referring to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, but you never see Jesus incorporate the, the Apocrypha. And again, it's not, even, it's not mentioned or quoted at all. Uh, which, um, by the way, this is just sort of a side note, Jesus did not say in that passage, when he's talking about, when he says all things which are written about me in those, those, those parts of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus did not say that there were encoded references to himself on every page of the Old Testament, right? Um, what he did say is that the prophecies of the coming Messiah are contained in each of those three main categories of the Old Testament uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Not that he can be found on every single page. Sometimes people go to that Luke passage and they sort of use that as a, as a grid to say, this is how we should interpret the Old Testament. Every passage in the Old Testament says something about Christ. Well, I don't think, that's, I don't think Jesus went to every passage in the Old Testament doing that. He's simply saying that if you, go to the, if you go to Moses, there's things in the Pentateuch that refer to me. If you want to go to the prophets, there's things in the prophets. The prophets certainly prophesied very specifically at times about me, but that's not all the prophets said. Everything that the prophets said is not about the person of Christ. So you don't find him, so to speak, in, in, in every, every text of the Old Testament. Jesus is just saying there's these three main divisions 
law, prophets, and psalms, and you can go to each one of those divisions of the Old Testament and you can find references to me. And I think what Jesus actually did is he just went to those portions and the places that actually did directly and explicitly refer to him. I think he simply pointed those out and and explained them. So it's interesting because what Jesus was condemning them, the four of those disciples sort of chastising them for, was not that they missed the message of the Old Testament, like that there were these encoded secret things that they didn't understand. It's that they were they were unbelieving. I mean, that was the thing. Is you, did, you didn't believe these things. You didn't embrace these things. You're slow of heart. You're foolish. So it wasn't that they sort of just missed it or that it wasn't obvious what was there. It's the fact that they, were, they, they had a heart of, of unbelief. So, so what we have in our hands, okay, are the 66 books of the Christian canon. Those inspired writings which God has preserved for His people. Words that are self-attesting and self-consistent. That is to say that only God is adequate to witness to Himself. So only, only the Lord, only God can identify His own Word. Therefore, God's Word must attest to itself. It must witness to its own divine character and origin. You see this, in, for instance, in John chapter 5, verse 36. It says, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. This is Jesus speaking. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who, who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who, whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. So throughout the history of redemption, God has direct, directed his people to find his message and words in written form. God, God himself really providing the prototype of written revelation when he delivered the tablets of law upon Mount Sinai and when God later spoke by his spirit through those chosen messengers, Second Peter tells us, their words were characterized by self-vindicating authority. That is to say, it was evident from their message that they were speaking for God whether, whether the claim was explicit and they used phrases like, thus saith the Lord, or implicit, for example, through the that sort of, we might call it the arresting power and demand of their message. In fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is finishing up that great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He gets to the end of that, and verse 28 says this, the result of Jesus' preaching was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. <laughs> so there is this, there is this. you might again call it this, the, the, the demand of the message, the call of the message, the power of the message, those things that were sort of inherent in, in uh, these, uh, again, both spoken words and, and words inscribed for us uh, in the scriptures. 
Moreover, their messages were of necessity coherent with each other. So a, a genuine word from God could always be counted upon to agree with previously given revelation. So again, there's just sort of God revealing himself over time, but again, the assumption that what was, what was being given in the present was not contradicting something that was already given. So, so the self-attestation of Scripture as God's words ma- makes it objectively authoritative in itself. So it's, in other words, our recognition that these books are inspired do not, doesn't, again, we made this point early on, it doesn't make them inspired. The fact that we recognize them as inspired by God does not make them inspired. They're inspired whether we acknowledge it or not. And that's why I say that it was the faithful in Israel <laughs> that acknowledged those things. Because there were people that heard those messages that did not believe that they were from God. Um, so there's this, this self-attestation of Scripture. It's authoritative in itself, but we would also affirm that, that author- such authority will never be subjectively received without an internal spiritual change on, on our part, right, in our hearts. So... The natural man does not accept that. The natural man doesn't, oh yeah, those, I see the self-attesting power of Scripture. God, we need the Spirit of God to awaken us, right? We need the Spirit of God to, to open our sinful eyes and give personal conviction concerning the Scripture's self-witness, uh, which is not to be confused with mysticism or subjectivism because the internal testimony of the Spirit doesn't stand by itself or operate in a vacuum, it's always teamed with the objective self-witness of the Scriptures themselves. So it's that combination of the objective self-attesting power authority of, of Scripture combined with the Spirit's work in our lives sort of subjectively that convinces us that the Scriptures are indeed the Word of God. Is that circular reasoning? Yes, I mean, we just have to accept that. I mean, people, you know, I can't prove to someone, right, that this is God's Word. I mean, I can give them all of the data about manuscripts and copies of this and, and dating of that, but it's not, that is not going to convince them this is the Word of God unless the Spirit of God does that internal work. So the canon has been historically settled under God's providence. Those works which God gave to His people um, for, for their canon always received immediate recognition as inspired, uh, at least by a portion of the intended audience. Again, those, those who were faithful to the Lord, that was the case in the Old Testament. That uh, was the case in the New Testament. The spiritual discernment of inspired writings from God by the corporate church was, of course, sometimes a drawn-out process and a struggle. So that sort of, you know, for the, those, the early days of the church... For, for there to be this sort of corporate collective agreement on these things, I mean, it makes sense that those things would have not happened overnight, that that would have been a struggle, which is due in part to the fact that in the ancient world there's slow me- there were slow means of communication, so they're not c- communicating via Facebook and, and texting and email. So even though these writings, I think, circulated fairly quickly and this recognition was taking place sooner than most people realize, it still did take time for those writings to, to circulate uh, just because of the slow means of communication and, and transportation. Uh, and then you couple that with, I think, just the cautious uh, 
um, the caution of the early church. I mean, the, the, even, the, even these writings themselves, they were warning about false teachers and false prophets. Very, again, very consistent with Old Testament. Old Testament was, was sounding these warnings as well. But I'm saying, uh, I don't think the church sort of in a very, in a cavalier way was just saying, oh yeah, that's in there, that's in there, that's in there. I mean, just, just put all these things together into New Testament canon. I think the church was very careful about that because of the threat of those false teachers. So I think they were very diligent. And I think that they were very careful as they move forward in in that process, and it just simply produced a dialogue and, and, and a debate, if you will, along the way to sort of achieving unity and, and one mind in, in that. But historical evidence indicates that even with all those difficulties, the Old and the New Testament canons were substantially recognized and already established in the Christian church by the end of the second century. So we're not talking about, you know, 400 uh, you know, A.D. 400, 500, you know, centuries later, these things were being, again, formulated and being recognized and even assembled uh, earlier than most people understand. If you want a good resource on this, uh, Bruce Metzger's book, The, the Canon of the New Testament, uh, is a good, uh, good uh, resource on that, on that particular topic. Um, so there's n- not just that, there's adequate biblical and theological reason to believe that the canon of Scripture was essentially settled, settled even in the earliest days of the church. So by the time of Jesus, there existed a well-defined body of literature which under the influence of the Old Testament prophets was recognized as defining and controlling genuine faith when Jesus or the apostles appealed simply to the scriptures, when they used that term, the scriptures, and they appealed to that against their Jewish opponents, opponents, there's no suggestion whatsoever that the identity and the limits of such writings were vague or in dispute. So when Jesus is talking about the scriptures and he's comparing that to the things that they're saying and embracing, there, it's, there's no debate about what Jesus is referring to. So there's this just assumption that these things were settled at that time. Uh, the New Testament church acknowledged the, the canonical authority of this Old Testament cor- this body, this corpus, noting that not the smallest letter or stroke of the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms was challenged or retracted by Christ. Uh, in fact, he declared in John 10.35 that the scriptures cannot be broken. Uh, Paul would later say in Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, we know that the early church recognized the standing canon of the Old Testament. We know that the Lord intended for the New Testament church to be built upon the word of the apostles, coming thereby to recognize the canonical literature of the New Testament. We know that all of history is governed by God's providence, Right, As Ephesians 1.11 states, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his, of his own will. So trusting Christ's promise that he would indeed build his church and being confident in the controlling sovereignty of God, we can be assured the God-ordained recognition of the canon would be providentially accomplished, which in retrospect is now a matter of historical record. <laughs> So we have confidence that God would preserve his word, and at this point we see it. It's, it has played out, right, that God has done exactly that through, through the history of the church.
To think otherwise would be, in effect, to deprive the Christian church of the sure word of God. And that, in turn, would both undermine the confidence that we have in the gospel, contrary to God's promise and our spiritual need, as well as consign us as believers to utter skepticism. And we just leave us with, well, okay, now what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be following? How should we treat each other? What does Christian marriage look like? How should the church function? You know, who should be in leadership? I mean, all those things that we have, we would be left in the dark had God not given us his inspired word and preserved it through the ages. So the Spirit of God has placed his mark on all the truly prophetic and apostolic writings of the canon the canon is closed. The, all the apostles are long dead, right? And you think about uh, Paul considered himself the, the last of, of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, and his successor, Paul's successor, if you look at the people that Paul had in his life and that he was raising up as future leaders, Timothy would stand out as that primary person that Paul really put, poured his, his life into, but yet Timothy was never given that title. Paul never referred to Timothy as, in, in that uh, technical sense, an apostle of Christ. There are no more books that are truly prophetic or apostolic beyond what we have in the New Testament, beyond Revelation. None others bear the testimony uh, of the Spirit of God. God's providential protection prohibits others from being found, even Christian ones. So again, we don't need to be out there. Sort of, we got to find out where, what, what lost books. You know, we got to find the missing book. After two thousand years, we've got to go on a search to find that lost letter to the Corinthians. Well, we don't need it. Why don't we need it? Well, because God hasn't preserved it. <laughs> it was it useful? Was it true? Yeah, it could have been true. Could have been useful. Could have been edifying. And again, there are certain there were messages given by prophets and apostles that were directly from God. They were speaking on behalf of God. We just don't have those things in print or we don't have them preserved through the providence of God. So we have what Christ promised and we need nothing else. So just in the way of application, just a few things here as we just kind of wrap up. I mentioned this, I think, the first week, but every book of the Bible is important. Okay, so just as an if we truly believe that these 66 books are God-inspired and that God has preserved them for the church, then we need to know these 66 books. So I would venture to say that most of you gravitate to certain things in the Bible. Okay, I mean, I know people, that are, they love Proverbs. I mean, they're in the Proverbs all the time, but, they, but they've never read the book of Ecclesiastes. Or you have people that... Man, they love to go back and they love to study the, the Old Testament, you know, history of Israel and, and those kinds of things. And then, but they're very unfamiliar with Paul's epistles. Or you have some people that it's always it's always Paul, <laughs> right? I mean, they just default to Paul as if Paul is somehow more authoritative than uh, Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah or David or Solomon. So I'm just saying it's just an encouragement to us to say if we really believe this, if we do believe in this book, this collection, these 66 writings, then we need to spend our lives studying all of them, right? Having a grasp of of all of them and how they they fit together and how they complement one another. Uh, The Sadducees, you remember, placed a... a, a, um, They didn't 
they didn't deny that the prophets and the writings were God-given. They just seemed to put more emphasis on the Pentateuch to the point where they just kind of neglected the other. But I say, well, we're guilty of that sometimes too, right? I mean, we, sometimes we gravitate to certain books and, and then neglect others. So it's just an encouragement to us that every book of the Bible is important. Um, little Esther is as important as Big Paul. Okay, so, so just think about, again, short term, it's fine to dive into a book. It's fine to spend four years, honestly, preaching through the book of Luke. That's fine. It's fine for us to spend 15 months in the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you step back and get a big picture, the question I think you need to ask yourself is over a decade or over two decades, I mean, some of you that have been a Christian for 20, 30 years, are you familiar with the storyline of the Bible and are you familiar with all those books? I mean, can you say something about those books? You say, what's this book about? Well, in general, it's about this. And if not, then it's just an encouragement to all of us to dig deeper and to be more balanced in that. Um, Also, I think this encourages us in, in, in just remembering that the power is in the text. The power is in the text, bringing out the intended meaning of the text. Uh, Matt Waymeyer posted a blog a couple of weeks ago. I thought this was really good. He said, he, this, is, this is what he writes. He says, on January 11th, 1989, President Ronald Reagan addressed the nation from the Oval Office for the 34th and final time. As he reflected on the eight years of his presidency, Reagan said something profound. He said, quote, In all of that time, I won the nickname the Great Communicator. But I never thought it was my style or the words that I used that made a difference. It was the content. I wasn't a great communicator, but I communicated great things. And then, and then Waymeyer says this. He says, A common temptation for preachers is to focus on style and delivery, or even the kind of rhetoric that will impress the listener. But preaching isn't about style, and the power of preaching isn't found in our ability to communicate. Power in the pul- pulpit comes from the content of the message. Regardless of how dynamic your delivery or breathtaking your rhetoric, if you do not proclaim the divinely intended meaning of God's word, your sermon will have no sanctifying effect on your listeners. Period. <laughs> So that is so when I say the powers in the text, I'm saying it's in digging into the text of Scripture and uncovering again the, the, the meaning, the intended meaning of the author is the same as the intended meaning of God, right? We're not looking for some sort of secret code in, in the scriptures. Um, we, we, we dig in, we study it, and when you share it and proclaim it, your confidence is in the scriptures, not in your words. So I have to tell myself in counseling sometimes, I can sit here for an hour and meet with somebody in counseling and talk all day long about God, about biblical things or even true things, but I have to step back sometimes and say, so where's the scriptures? <laughs> are you sharing the scriptures? Or are you just sharing the summary of what the scriptures teach rather than actually taking people to the text? Um, so the powers in the text, I also would say Christianity is a religion that is about a book. It is. It just simply is. There are some people today that are desperately trying to drive a wedge between having a relationship with Jesus and being committed to the Bible. Emphasizing the life of Christ and the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Christ die and rise on the third day, but at the same time downplaying the authority and significance of the rest of Scripture. So the question, is the resurrection important? Absolutely. 
But what about everything else the Bible has to say about the life of Christ even, right? It's, it, it, not just anyone came back from the dead, right? A sinless man, a divine person, right? As someone that could actually mediate, right, and could stand and bridge the gap between us and God. So there's a lot more there. Um, and we need, the, we need the whole counsel of God, simply put. And, and, and you don't get the whole counsel of God by just studying a portion of the Bible. You get the whole counsel of God by studying all that the Bible has to say. And then finally, I would just say that this, is a, this book is alive. Okay, it is, it is different. Okay, it's not just a book that is true. It is a living book. Hebrews 4.12. It, Hebrews 4.12 doesn't say that the Word of God is about life. It doesn't even say it's about how to live. Or, and it doesn't say that, the book, the, 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 that God's Word is about daily living, although it's all those things, right? It is about life. It is about how to live life. It is about daily living. So all those things are true, but that's not what Hebrews 4 tells us. Hebrews 4 tells us that the Word of God is living and active. It is living and active. It is alive and it is able to make us alive. That's why Peter says in, in his uh, 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. So the Scriptures have, like no other book, life-giving, resurrecting power. Martin Luther said it this way, The Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. It's living. It is energetic, it is energizing, it is electrifying, powerful, life-changing, it goes to work, it is effectual, dynamic, and operative. So these are not just true words or accurate words, although they are true and accurate. They are God's words to us, and, and they change us. They change us. So hopefully that will... Again, I, I hope that just it bolsters your confidence in, in the Scriptures and the Word of God. And again, and it, it explains a lot about, hopefully explains a lot about our church. You know, people that are coming into our church, visiting our church, wondering what our church is about, it explains the fact that we have Bible studies. It explains the fact that we have small groups and that we don't in our small groups just, you know... Um, do crazy things. I mean, I would love to give some examples, but there's just some crazy things going on out there in the small group world that churches are encouraging. This is about the truth. This is about learning the truth, applying the truth, holding one another accountable to the truth, encouraging one another with the truth. So it's, it is the very foundation, the bedrock of what we do. Um, and so that's, that's why, as David Kemp and I says, why we're not talking about the Reader's Digest this morning in Bible study. And there's a lot of other things we could talk about, a lot of things happening in the world Right, but we have a limited amount of time with you, and we have a limited amount of time with one another, and we want to make the center of what we do the, the, the scriptures, uh, the Word of God. So I encourage you in that, and again, encourage you to study broadly when it comes to the Bible itself. And uh, hopefully, in the coming weeks, as we jump into Song of Solomon, that may be a book again that is somewhat unfamiliar. You might be unfamiliar with, but we'll try to. We'll try to familiarize you a little bit with that in, in the coming weeks, okay? All right, folks, thank you for your time.